Hi everyone, welcome back to Hitchcock University where you learn filmmaking from the masters. Okay, uh, last class session we talked about the movie Kundun, um, the, movie, the story about the Dalai Lama uh, who had to flee Tibet. Uh, this time we're going to move back into some probably more familiar territory for a lot of you when it comes to Marty. And we're going to talk about the film Gains of New York starring Leonardo DiCaprio, Daniel Day-Lewis, Cameron Diaz. For those of you who don't know, which I imagine is probably only a few of you, if any, um, Gains of New York is a story about a young man played by Leonardo DiCaprio who seeks revenge for uh, his father, who was killed by Daniel Day-Lewis's character, uh, Bill the Butcher. And it's set against the backdrop of the New York neighborhood, the Five Points, uh, specifically during the Civil War era, um, which was a time of um, time of violence. It, it, it feels more like a Western than it does an urban film. There were, as the title would suggest, gangs that inhabited this area, this area that were... Um, very tribal. There were Irish gains mostly, and there were what they called native gains that were Anglo-Dutch men who'd been born and raised um, in Manhattan, and and you know their fathers had fought in the War of 1812 or whatever, so they felt that they had more right to live there than these Irish immigrants. So there's a lot of clashing between these two cultures. This is a story Marty had wanted to do since the 70s. Because Marty was raised with some of these stories, or some of the stories of the era. And he really started to put it all together in 1970 when he read the book, Gains of New York, by, I believe, Herbert Asbury. And then years later, he starts working on the script with Jay Cox somewhere in the 70s, um, I believe before he even did Raging Bull. And the problem was right around that time, as we discussed in class sessions afterward, um, the studio system started to change in the 80s. Uh, moved less from personal expression by directors, moved more toward putting the power in the producer's hands. So a big epic that would have taken, a, a, not only a big epic, but a big period epic um, was nearly impossible to get funding for. So Marty moved along, tackled other projects. And then in the 90s, it gains a little bit more traction. And he kind of is able to kind of push it forward and then it dies again. And it's not until the late 90s, while he's working on Kundun, that his agent, Mike Lovitz, very powerful agent, um, comes to him and says, well, Marty, what do you want to do next? And he says, well, I'd really like to do Gains of New York. He says, okay. Well, I've got this kid, Leonardo DiCaprio, um... If we can get him, then I think we can get this movie made. You know, I represent him, so so, so I think we can do this. And Leo was just coming off of Titanic at the time, so he's a major Hollywood star at this point. And with the combination of Mike Lovitz, Leonardo DiCaprio, and Harvey Weinstein, sorry, it's, it's the truth, uh, terrible man, but he helped push a lot of great films through, uh, unfortunately, I guess. Anyway, with with that power combination, Marty directing, and eventually bringing on board Daniel Day-Lewis, they were really able to get this project underway. Now, the interesting things about Gains in New York is it's not like Goodfellas. It's not like Mean Streets. It's not like Casino. It's not even like Age of Innocence. 
all of those films are incredibly anthropological. And Marty stayed very true to try to make sure that everything he put on the screen was as representative of that life as possible. And it's not that he didn't do that with this film. It's just that there was a fine line to ride between anthropology and fiction, or as he calls it, opera. Marty wasn't so worked up about making sure that every single thing in this movie was 100% accurate, accurate to the exact period or the exact year that they were setting the story in. So there's some things that kind of mix together that are from the era, but maybe not necessarily from exactly 1963. And part of that, Marty says, was this is a direct quote from Scorsese on Scorsese. I think the hardest thing about the film was that we could have kept layering it with more history, but at a certain point, I have to decide what stays in and what goes out. Marty talks at length about how, if it wasn't the movie, but maybe a miniseries, or um, like an HBO television show, he could have just kept going because there was so much rich history that he was pulling from. But at the end of the day, it was a film and he had to, he had to hone it in to a certain point so that he could get where he needed, so, so that he could actually do the movie. And Marty says this, it's more like, although I'm not setting it on the same level as a film I love, My Darling Clementine. Where the gunfight at the OK Corral lasts about 14 minutes, whereas in reality it was under a minute. History is suggested and there's the impression of a world. But that's the idea. Marty, Marty is, is trying to balance what, what a lot of us would probably just call a historical fiction. It is a fictional story that is set in a historical period. And so not everything's 100% accurate, but that's because it wasn't necessarily meant to be. It's meant to give you an idea of what it was like in that time while hopefully entertaining you and dazzling you with a story. So he's balancing, he's balancing anthropology with opera, right? So on the one hand, he's constantly telling his collaborators, as he said, go for the most. The most history, the most anthropology, the most action, wherever it may be. You know, he wants them to collect all the research that they can and shove as much of it as they can into whatever it is they're doing, whether it's the lighting or the sets or the costumes or the makeup or what have you. And so Dante Ferretti, the great production designer who's worked with Scorsese on a number of films, builds, builds five points in, on the Roman studio Cinecita. Uh, he builds the five points. He builds Paradise Square. It's this massive, it's like a mile long and or mile circumference or something like that it's it's huge and not only that normally when when a when a production team comes in and they build an exterior set like paradise square the interiors of all the buildings are fake they're not actually there they're just what they call facades they're just fronts and then you do the the interiors in a in a, in a soundstage somewhere that's not what they did they built the interiors so he builds the interiors and the exteriors so that he really just built, to the best of his ability, Paradise Square, inside and out, so that Marty could take the camera over here and shoot something and then decide, well, you know, and then maybe this next thing we'll go over here and do it this way, even though it's in the script this other way. Maybe we'll go over here and shoot it. He could just decide at a minute's notice what to do. But Marty says, in general, the decor isn't real. It's heightened. And there's that fine line between anthropology 
and opera. As real as it was, it still has a, an air of legend about it. And that's the thing about this era that's so interesting that Marty found out the more he researched it, is so much of what we know about it is legend, is myth. And a lot of that worked its way into the film. There's a, there's a great oneer, a great one-shot, um, or, or long take, or whatever your preferred terminology is, where in a single shot, Marty shows Irish immigrants coming off the boat, getting in line to sign up, to volunteer to join the Union Army, to go fight the Confederacy, getting on a boat to ship down south, and then, a, and then on that same boat are coffins being unloaded of fallen soldiers. Now, that's not necessarily how it would have happened, but it gets the point across. And Marty said, as far as we were concerned, that's, it might as well have happened that way. You know, it's, it's a compression of time, of events, but it makes the point and it and it tells the story and for a dramatic for an operatic purposes that's just fine another great example is Dan, is daniel day lewis's character bill the butcher so bill the butcher was inspired by um bill pope bill pope something like that something something like that um but they changed his name to like william cutting and the you know, the character that Bill the Butcher is inspired after was a butcher, was a, a strong nativist, hated the Irish, did many, of, did many of the kinds of things you see Bill the Butcher do in the film. But he lived, like, 20 years earlier, died 10 years before this film starts. Like, there's a lot of historical things that if you dig deep enough, you realize, well, that's not Bill the Butcher. That's, that's not this guy that... He, he's reminiscent of, but he's not supposed to be. The whole point is to get the point across, to tell the story, and to give the audience a sense of what it was like at that time in the five points. Now, speaking of giving an impression, I want to talk again about montage. So, I love montage, in case you haven't gotten that impression already. Um, montage was something that I fell in love with as a student and continue to love to this day. And so when another filmmaker talks about montage, it's going to be in this podcast. And I'm hoping that over the course of time, we can kind of talk a lot about montage theory and, and we can hopefully... In fact, I may do a whole season just on some of the Soviet filmmakers because I, I, I think they're that interesting. Anyway, so Marty says he's always been fascinated by Soviet montage as well, specifically how Eisenstein could use cuts to make even the end of an action or a stillness very powerful. Let me give you an example that he brings up in reference to this film. So there's a scene in the movie ba Battleship Potemkin, which is a story about uh, the beginning, well, not the beginning, but part of the Russian, or uh, not the beginning. Uh, yeah, kind of the beginning of the Russian Revolution, I believe, um, where there's these sailors on the Battleship Potemkin who are about ready to perform a mutiny and join the revolution. And they've been given really, really crappy food that they refuse to eat. And one of the dishwashers is washing the dishes. And there's, a, there's a, a dish that says, give us this day our daily bread. And he becomes so infuriated that he, that he breaks the dish. And, but because it's a Sergei Eisenstein film, because it's a, a movie by a man 
who is the father of modern, of montage theory. It's not shot straightforward. Plus, it's a silent film, so you wouldn't shoot it straight. Uh, well, uh, uh, despite it being a silent film, it's not shot straightforward. What we see is a close-up of the dish, a close-up of a man's face, a close-up of his arm being raised, another close-up of his face, I think, and then a different angle of his arm being raised, like really rearing back to, to just break this dish on the table. A quick close-up, a really just quick close-up on his, on his eyes, basically. And his arm coming down, and then this kind of wider shot on the table, and the dish is actually already broken. You never actually see him break the dish. And then the last shot in this, in this sequence, in this montage sequence, is of the follow-through. So you see the dish broken as the arm finishes its move, and then a close-up of just the arm in the follow-through. But you never actually see the dish being broken. But it's implied through all those cuts. You know what happened, even though you don't see it. Your mind tells you what happened. Your mind puts in a shot that's not there. And that's montage theory. Montage theory says if you cut from shot A to shot B, the human brain will infer information that is not in either of those shots. But what Marty was particularly interested in about that was not just that you don't see the dish being broke, but that sometimes the end of an action is really all you need. And in the opening battle sequence where Leo's father gets killed, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of ending action. There's some starting action and ending action, but there's no middle. Marty says in Scorsese against Scorsese, I was particularly interested in cause and effect, a swing across the frame, then landing on someone, but not showing the impact, implying it through the cut. So in this battle scene at the beginning, especially, it kind of gets lost as the film goes on. We'll talk about that in a second, but... But there's and, and but also throughout the film, there are implied actions because the film is very bloody. But Marty would tell you it's not actually that violent in terms of what's on the screen. There's another scene later where Daniel Day-Lewis's character stabs a man through the hand as they're playing cards and pins it to the table. He says there were five shots designed for where Bill pin, pins a man's hand to the table, but you never see the knife go into the hand. It's all on camera, overhead. The man's face, Bill's face, and that's how a lot of things were done in the picture. It's, it's a lot of close-ups of other things that imply action happening, imply the violence. And Marty even said that maybe if he'd been younger, he would have been more inclined to just shoot it straight forward. But as he became older and perhaps a better artist, a better master of filmmaking, his tendency became to rely more on the editing, more on the montage, more on the cutting. Now, the other issue was, so I don't think they shot the film in sequence, but one of the last things they shot was these big riots at the end of the movie, which is there's a lot of spread out actions and violent sequences. And the problem was they were running out of money. So Marty had the second unit uh, director that they'd already worked together on the opening battle sequence and it talked a lot about montage so by the time they get to get to this big battle at the end he says i designed a bunch of shots and gave them to vic that's the second unit director like shots from the street confrontation in pudovkin's the deserter which i haven't seen but it's on my list literally we went to certain shots in certain russian films to get this 
and this, move that way, do this one backwards, undercrank it more, and he goes on and on and on. See, Marty understood, Marty, Marty's so good at designing shots that sometimes we forget that he's an editor at heart, and he has a great editor who works for him, Thelma Schoonmaker, who has helped him work through the editing of a number of films and really get the structure and the edit down. But Marty is an editor's director. Marty, much like Hitchcock, Marty understands the value of a cut. And he understands... He also understands the value of a shot, but he also understands the value of cutting from one shot to another shot. And that's the thing we can't forget, is that there is value in the editing. It's really easy to get locked in on, oh, this shot's so great, I love it so much. But... If you don't have shots that can work in conjunction with each other, then you don't really have a movie. You just have a series of a lot of good shots. The most hardcore montage theorists would say that editing is what makes a movie. It's, it's the ability to cut from one thing to another that makes this medium what it is. And I'm, I'm kind of inclined to agree with them. So there's some food for thought. Anyway. Um, I've been Taylor Bickle. This has been Hitchcock University. Thank you so much for listening. Um, we'll do another class session again in two weeks where we'll talk about The Aviator, and then we're going to talk about The Departed. And then are we going to talk about Shutter Island? Yeah. Yeah, Shutter Island. Um, if you have any comments, questions, concerns, uh, please feel free to reach out to uh, the podcast at HitchcockUniversity at gmail.com. Um, there's also the Facebook page, Hitchcock University, and the Twitter, Hitch underscore U, as in university. Uh, thank you once again for listening. I've been Taylor Bickle. This has been Hitchcock University. We'll talk to you again in two weeks.